Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 95. I'm Mike Thomas and I'm here with my co-host Elaine Giles. And in this episode, Geeky Rabbits, European Suction Shenanigans and Plucking Plectrums. Can I just say, well done for that introduction. I wasn't expecting it on the first take. Ah, thank you. But we start this week with Jane. She said, what a great start to the day. This was on Twitter. What a great start to the day, a no games mantra and the Goombay dance band to accompany my morning stagger, courtesy of MacBytes. Carrie wasn't quite so sure about your taste in music, though, because she replied, I'm with you on the no games, but unsure about the Goombay dance band. Carrie, the Goombay dance band. What can you say against them? But uh, happy to report that Minster is also all caught up. Yes, MacBite Siri tweeted crowing about his success in ensuring a regular supply of new shows. So um, MacBite Siri said uh, that big stick that at Minster 68 sent me is serving us all well. But Minster was on to him and said you must be using a bit of 4x2 to keep the crew in the studio for six weeks. And then added he's up to date. So um, well done, Minster. Jenna was almost caught up. Poor Jenna. She says, I was literally finishing up 93 just now on my Sonos. Is it Sonos? Sonos? I don't know. Posh audio thing. At the point where Elaine says, and you can follow me on, and my mail dings, growl mail reads out, MacBytes94, Mike's bot bot. So, Jenna, just for you, we've given you an extra day this week. We trust there is no sign of delinquency anymore. Bob DeGrand left us a comment on the show notes relating to what we discussed last week, which was the Man United ban on iPads. He said, I actually stopped going to the Yankee Stadium when they banned iPads. My iPad is LTE and I was not willing to be cut off from the online world. Now, I don't think an iPad ban alone would stop me going to Old Trafford. Um, Can I just say there's plenty of other reasons not to go? Uh, The price, the petty rules, the performance or lack of it. Should we talk about what's just happened? Let's not talk about what's just happened. For those who don't know what's just happened, you close your ears, Mike. For those who don't know what's just happened, we're recording this on uh, Tuesday night. Yes. I've lost track of the days. I'm on holiday. Tuesday night and uh, Manchester United have just got beaten 4-0, which would be bad enough, wouldn't it? It's by whom? By a team in a league, two leagues below them. So not good. He's not happy at the moment. Uh, Manchester United's second team, shall I say. Oh, stop wriggling on the hawk. Embarrassment, still embarrassment. Get on with it. So as I'm saying, performance or lack of it. And in our case, flying bricks. Remember that night? Yeah, so I do. Is that it? No. Do you remember that police line a few years back? Yes, go on. Share that one with them. We were coming out of the stadium. It wasn't even a big game, was it? It wasn't Liverpool or Arsenal or something like that. It was just an average game. And we used a shortcut to the car park. We'd used it for years. It was a residential area and it was an open public standard road. No sort of back alleys, back entries, nothing, nothing that could possibly cause any problem. Until we got to the road where we would turn right and there was an impenetrable police lineup for absolutely no reason at all wouldn't let you through. Oh yes, that was the day you nearly lost it. I did. That was because the alternative route added about a mile to our walk. So I made the mistake of just asking one of these police people why they were there. No reply. I lost it almost as bad as I did when my ticket went missing. That was another classic, wasn't it? That was. And you wonder what would put me off going to a football (laughs) match. I'm with Bob. I I want to be entertained. Have a good experience, and and most of my experiences are terrible. That one was hard to choose which one was the worst. Remember the ticket? I'm not likely to forget it. Well, you got the best of that day. What happened was, we have two season tickets. One arrived, one didn't. Guess whose did that would be mine? So um, you get onto the club and you say, you know, you know that season ticket that you posted out, Standard Royal Mail? When I begged and pleaded with you to let me pay to have a courier deliver it, it went missing. <laughs> Big surprise. So they sent me a letter and this letter was printed on an inkjet printer and the ink had run like crazy because it was raining. So um, I, what you had to do was take this letter to the ground, stand it in a certain position and stay there. What could possibly go wrong? They would send somebody to deal with us. So as, a, as it was raining, this inkjet letter all ran. No, it didn't say to bring ID, but I did anyway. And we were to wait for ticket office assistance at the ticket office, at which point the police moved in on these massive horses and told us that if we didn't move, they'd arrest us. 
But the United contingent said, if you do, we won't let you in. Devil and the deep blue sea there. Definitely. It's not exactly a night at the theatre, is it? No. You know, warm, comfortable, nice no. drink. No. Hmm. Yes, I'm with Bob. I, I can understand, you know, they're saying security. I can understand it, but not the best experience. And seen as though they'll allow phones in anyway. So thank you very much for that, Bob. Moving on, totally nothing to do with football. Gemma also made an interesting point in a mail this week. She said an interesting discussion regarding the App Store guide and the human touch involved in the process. It reminded me of the human touch involved in the review process and how, how well that goes at times. I think she's referring to me, isn't she? She probably is. Well, I mentioned, didn't I, that Drop Zone 3 had been in review since forever. And um, the worst one was ScreenFlow that was in review for seven weeks. That's what I'm saying about the human touch. I just think it's it's too big. It's it's not just that. It's not just the length of time, though, is it? It's what apps get through. You think about some uh, some some of the horror stories we've heard over the years of what apps will get through, what apps they let through, and what apps maybe they won't let through. I agree. I just don't think no matter how big the team was, it could keep up just with the sheer number of apps. So the, the ones you'll see will be the big boys that everybody sees. And unfortunately, unless there's a reason to look at an app favourably, like the Hanks writer, it probably won't get much attention, even if it's fabulous. So um, I agree. Human's great, but it doesn't scale well. No. And there was also an update on James's MacBook Pro story from last week. Yes, it seems Macworld UK are on the case. They've written a long piece on their site and they tweeted it. So I made sure to tweet back and send them James's story. And I know that they've had a look at that because they favorited the tweet. Um, it was quite a long piece, as I say, and it reiterated all of the problems. The thing that got me was there was almost 300 comments on this story. And I think it had only been up a day. And there were some terrible stories, as well as videos showing the actual problem. But the reason behind writing the piece, in addition to the problems that people are having, is that there is a 10,000 signature petition available online. So they were making the point that they reached 10,000 signatures on this petition. And further making the point that there's still nothing from Apple and they had reached out more than once for a comment and uh, Apple don't appear to want to know, which I think is terrible. I think that's terrible as well. It is, as we said last week, it's a, it's a known problem. Um, any other manufacturer, I'm sure, would have had something to say by now. Even somebody like um, Asta, you know, they recall something when there's something wrong with a product. But Apple, no. Well, yes, but when they recall something, it's usually dangerous. And with this, it's just broken. It's just not working, is it? It, it, I know this is going to sound terrible, but it would actually be better for people who have bought these things if they set on fire, because then they'd have to do something about it. It's just the fact that it, it just dies. That's a good way of thinking about it, actually. It could be arranged. Yeah, sadly, they're not setting on fire, if you're with me. But uh, like I say, if they were, they'd be dealing with it. But the thing is, if you've not got one of these MacBook Pros, you're going to be thinking, oh, well, you'll start making excuses for Apple because mentally you don't want to hear a story about Apple being terrible on the customer service side. And I know that they sorted James out in the end, but there's 10,000 people out there that they've not sorted out. But it's not just this MacBook Pro, is it? Look at the iMacs, the 27-inch iMacs that also have a problem. I'd rather not be having to cover stories where stuff isn't working. At any point, that wasn't what Apple Kit was like years ago. I know we've had problems with other pieces of Apple Kit, but it seemed to be when I researched it, it wasn't like, oh, and there's 10,000 other people with the same problem. It really was like a random fault. But these issues that you're looking at now, they're not, though they're seemingly not random faults. They're actually faults that other people have and they seem to be manufacturing issues. They are, and it's becoming more common, isn't it? So quite depressing, actually, but still very pleased that James sorted himself out. Just hope everyone else can sort themselves out. But people were saying in the comments they'd already spent 300-odd pounds um, one got told it was a tiny part on the, on the logic board, so he paid to have that replaced, and then got told it was another part, so paid to have that replaced. So even if they did one repair for free, there, there was still money outstanding, because as James pointed out, it could happen again. 
it is a known issue with the whole design of the thing. So terrible, terrible, terrible. I'm sure we'll be hearing about that again, hopefully with some good news that Apple have stepped up and uh, dealt with it. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, should we move on and look at some shiny new software that came out this week? I am always up for looking at shiny new software, even though I feel, because it's Parallels 10, that it's the annual upgrade tax. Do you feel that? It's the annual upgrade tax, which I don't pay. Well, no, but Fusion are just as bad. It, it's, it used to be every time they brought out um, a new OS X operating system, there was a new version. And then, do you remember when you we had, I think it was Leopard that we had for a long time. We had Tiger for quite a long time too. Then there was like two versions of Parallels or Fusion while there was one operating system. But at the moment with Apple bringing out the annual operating system update, they seem to be doing the same. The difference is Apple aren't charging you and this lot are. So I know you can get, I think most people who have Parallels probably get it in a bundle because there's some fantastic bundles. But if you are in the market to upgrade, then it does seem to be an annual upgrade tax. They also made the usual claim. This is the annual claim. It's 50% faster. And as I say, they make that claim every update. If it were true, it'd be running faster than you could use it by now, I think. That's true. I've actually stuck with Fusion for that long that I'd have to have some compelling reason, I think, to go back to Parallels. Uh, for me, performance of Fusion is fine. It's actually the Mac that slows down when a, a, a VM is running. Although, if I think about it, I probably hand over too much of my RAM to the VM, but it's the VM that I'm actually using at that point. I use it primarily for Windows, for making Windows-based videos, learning new Office stuff and things like that. And also, I don't really want to risk having to convert all of my VMs to Parallels. If somebody asked me, and somebody recently did, I would probably recommend Fusion, but they're kind of much of a muchness, aren't they? And it's to, for me, it's really down to personal experience. I can agree with most of that. Um, there does look to be some nice additions to this version, though. They're saying it's got Yosemite support, which is quite important. I always wonder why companies bring out software this close to a new OS from Apple because it will break something. But they're saying it's it's going to it's either got or going to have Yosemite support. So at least it's nice that that would be ready from day one. Um, there's also, you know, that continuity feature that's coming in Yosemite. Yeah. Well, the, the aspect of dialing the phone or receiving calls on, on the Mac, um, Parallels allows you to do the same from within Windows. So some people might find that useful. It's got iCloud Drive support and it's saying iPhoto library support. So there's something crying out for an update already. Um, it's also integrated with the Yosemite Notification Center. So it shows you which VM you're currently using and what the resource usage of that is. So in your circumstances, if it's slowing the Mac down, you might be able to work out what's actually using all the processing power. And if it's something that you don't need, so say it's like the virtual DVD drive, then you could disable that. Uh, coherence is still there. That's the mode where your Windows app looks like it's a Mac app. It doesn't um, exist within the window of Windows, if you will. It floats it over the top of your Mac stuff. And there's also a new blur the background feature. I, I'm, you remember we said about this transparency thing, not interested. Yeah. We're going to be bombarded with it, whether we like it or not, by the look of it. And of course, you know, it'll happen. I'll try it, love it, and then wonder how I ever live without it. Uh, but the 50% faster claim actually refers to running Microsoft Office. Sold. So on that basis, you might be sold. <laughs> yeah. The 30% better battery claim uh, is there too. And uh, the reviews I've read say that it does use a lot less battery which seems to be quite important to most people I've seen reviewing it. But since I mainly use it on a desktop, I really don't care. I think you use it on a desktop too? I use it on a desktop, yeah. Mm, nice selling point, not interested. It'd probably melt my laptop. Uh, now, the other thing they've got is a Parallels Wizard. That is sounding Windowsy, isn't it? That is, yeah. Well, it's for setting up new VMs, and the objective is to tweak performance. So the options you've got, you can have four different types of um, setup, really. Productivity, games, design, or software development. Most of the time, I think I'd probably go for productivity. But looking at it, I wondered if you wouldn't be better going for games. Because the problem with most VMs when it comes to, I, I need to record the Windows screen, and 
if I'm using something like Photoshop on Windows, the graphics can't keep up. But when I read the little bit of blurb next to each of those options, the games one seemed to be focusing on providing the best graphics experience. So I would say there would be an argument for choosing games, even if you were using it for software development, just so you don't have any problems with the graphics, because that's that's the one thing I've struggled with with virtual machines when I'm using them in a live situation. If I'm using them recorded, I can always do it twice, but live, I can't rely on it. Um, but of course, that option is a bit of an issue because it's there at the beginning when you're setting up a new VM, which would mean installing Windows, which would mean activating it, which would bring with it all of those problems. And in relation to that, they've removed the ability to download and install Windows directly from Parallels because Microsoft aren't happy with the licensing issue. I'm sure we mentioned that and I said, how on earth are they getting around that? They used to let you download a VM. I vaguely remember that, yeah. Um, well, it's gone. That's not there. But they are in discussions with Microsoft to bring it back, apparently. And it's also got mobile access, but it's via a completely separate app. Looks like it's very good, but that app costs you $19.99 a year just to keep using it, which isn't bad if it's a great service and you really use it, but it's quite steep when you compare it to $49.99 for the upgrade price of Parallels or $79.99 if you don't have anything to upgrade from. And I don't think I would use that. No, I can't. You've seen it? I can't see me see. I uh, can't see me using that either. No, I think it's if it's something that you haven't got and you don't have a need for it, then leave, walk away and leave it alone. But as you say, it's not actually easy to switch between VMware Fusion and Parallels because of the licensing situation. I find it personally heart in mouth moment every time there's an update, either to um, either Fusion or Parallels or Windows itself. Because sometimes you update Windows, even on a physical Windows install, and it goes through the activation process again. But obviously, there's more chance of that with Fusion and Parallels, because the update might make a virtual change to the hardware that the Windows licensing thinks is a new machine. And you know what the activation process for Windows is like. Hideous. It is. The last couple of times, actually, it's been okay, but I've had a couple of occasions where the activation servers failed, and then I've actually had to ring up um, and do it via telephone, which has been fun. Not. Um, it takes an age to do it. They they read you out about uh, 10 lots of 10 digits, and, and you have to type in another 10 lots of 10 digits, and eventually it activates itself. But, um, yeah, it's... it's uh, not ideal doing it that way. No, I've I've had it's been okay when it's done it automatically, like you're saying. It's when you've got to ring them up, and it is automated because I think when it happened to us, it was Christmas week. That'd be right. Yeah, we were doing it Christmas Day. We weren't were. We? we know how to live here, and I said, well, they'll be closed. But it is automated, so it did get there in the end. But like you're saying, it was just so complicated. It wasn't just you ring up, say hello, it's me. Here's my number, and they give you a new serial number. It was a long, complicated process. And I remember you saying I should have recorded this because it literally went on for a good 25 minutes. It did. Um, talking to Microsoft, I know that there's something that you've been getting giddy with this week. Microsoft have added handwriting support to OneNote for Android. They've also radically changed the interface too. I'm thinking that that interface is so radically different that they will bring it to the iPad in the end. And if you've not seen it, it looks very similar to Evernote for Android. So I don't know whether they're trying to match the style of it. The main difference is it's got this kind of sliding panel interface. So if you can imagine having a device in portrait mode and you've got your notes on it, if you slide or swipe to the right, it reveals the list of notes. And if you slide that to the right, then it lists your notebooks. So whereas before, um, it was a very different interface. It was more like a physical notebook. So they've really changed that interface a lot. But for me, it was the handwriting um, that they've added to it. A great addition and I've tried it, but it really shows up the poor state of the stylus market. Trying to write something legible was like trying to paint the Mona Lisa with a sausage. The secret is a decent stylus. I did actually try penultimate years ago. Remember that one? 
Oh, I do. It wasn't a great experience and the output wasn't very good. Um, I know it takes longer to type into OneNote or Evernote when I'm taking notes, but I find that the end result is usually better. I've had a few styli, but none with a tip fine enough to write with. Nowhere near. The one I've got is a just mobile one. It's... um. Did you get one of those? It's quite a chunky thing. It looks like a crayon. I might, might have done. I think I've got two or three. Well, it's been great if what you're doing with it, when I'm doing a demo, I, I do sometimes use a stylus because I need to see the screen more than I could do if I've got my hand over it. So sometimes I use it for that. And it's great. You know, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't catch or anything, but the, the tip of it is like a rubberized thing. And it's just way too big for drawing with. And, and certainly... For, for handwriting with it. The options that I've seen are the 53 ones. Have you seen those two? One's a walnut one and the other's made of graphite. Don't think I've seen them, no. They've only just come to this country. They've been available here before, but um, it's been third parties that have brought them in, so they've been really expensive. So the price has come down about 20%. They're still over the £50 mark. One's about 55 the other's 65 it looks nice. It gets good reviews. But looking again at the tip of it, it just looks too wide. Um, the other one that I looked at was the Evernote JotScript. And again, that, that one looks a little bit narrower, but they are all so expensive. You're not talking £10 for these things. I think that one's around the £50 mark as well. And because they're so expensive and there's no way to really test them, it kind of puts me off because I've bought that many. I've probably got a drawer full of the things. And they all vary, you know, both in, in terms of usage and in terms of size. But none of them are precise enough. This is why that Surface Pro 3 is still calling me. What, just for the pen? I know it's shameful, but yes. It, it, it just looked, in the demo, it looked great. It's something I'd have to try. I'll probably head off to Curry's PC World. I know the shame. Uh, just to try it, obviously, just to try it. If it worked as well as it looked like it worked, I do make that many notes. It would be worth it. So I'll just leave that there. And then when I've seen it, um, I'll come back. Wouldn't it be horrendous if it was absolutely fabulous and I ended up buying one? Would it? I saw something. Well, the bank balance wouldn't be happy. I'm moving on. I saw something this week that I thought you'd appreciate. And it's nothing to do with surfaces or pens. After last week's discussion on EU regulations, where we talked about the IPIN, from the 1st of September, companies in the EU will be banned from making or importing, wait for it, vacuum cleaners what? above 16, 1600 watts. You just couldn't make <laughs> this stuff up, could you? Apparently, because when you told me, I had a look. Apparently, it's part of the EU Energy Efficiency Directive, designed to help tackle climate change. But I did read the whole thing. It's quite long, isn't it? We'll put a link in the show notes. It gets worse because the last line of a very long article reports, from the 1st of September 2017, all vacuum cleaners will be less than 900 watts. So, on that basis, by 2020, we'll be back to a broom made of twigs. <laughs> Probably. I wonder if they're aware that hair dryers are more powerful than that. Talking of insanity, Twitter seems to have caught some of that this week. Twitter is seemingly inserting random tweets into a user's timeline. Yeah. Now, to me, the whole point of Twitter is to follow who you want to follow, mute when appropriate, unfollow when appropriate... I don't want to see random tweets. On the other hand, there is, as we talked about last week, the discoverability aspect of it, that you might actually find something or someone interesting. Because I remember, I think it was, um, was it Echophon that I used before Tweetbot? I think it was Echophon. I bet it was Twinkle because Twinkle worked like that. No, I did I, you well, Twinkle might have worked like that, but that's not what I was going to say. What I was going to say was in a previous client, which I think was Echophone on the desktop, they used to insert random adverts. And oh, they did. I paid for it to get rid of those. Can't be doing with adverts. Yeah, now I didn't. And now and again, there was something interesting in there. So the, the discovery aspect of, of that is, is, is there. But, you know, the jury is still out for me on that one. The, the whole aspect. You're the kind of user that encourages that kind of behaviour. <laughs> Consider yourself reprimanded. Okay. No, it's going to depend if you can control it in any way, because you can mute via clients. And I find I've not muted that many things 
I, I have to be pushed or to people. mute stuff. I, I think I'm very tolerant. Stop sniggering. Um, but I've, I've, for the little few things I have muted, I get a very different experience via the website. So can you mute or block if it's Twitter that's pushing it to you? I don't know. Well, we'll find out, won't we, when it happens? <laughs> yeah. You see, this is why I'd prefer to just pay. I, I have said this a million times. I wish Twitter would take my money. But obviously they're intent on just annoying me. Hmm. It's in annoy Elaine week, obviously. Yes, apparently so. They're probably in cahoots with the European community. Now, by the time you hear this, the latest new toy from Blue should be available. Yes, the battle for our ears is hotting up as Blue take on Apple and Beats with new headphones called a MoFi. Hmm, interesting name, that. Um, it's been a while as they announced it at Macworld and then... As happens a lot, nothing for months and months and months. You know, there's a few software companies like that. Maybe we could clarify what we mean. Oh, nicely done. Subtle. Although I'm almost tempted to say that clarify was actually worth the wait. Mm, steady on. Indeed. Anyway, back to these he these headphones. They are high end. They are pretty expensive, uh, £275. They are actually, at that price, more expensive than a lot of the Beach range, but not all of them. Because when we checked, we found headphones at prices that would make my eyes bleed, I'm afraid. Uh, now, the reason with these, why are these after our ears? Well, there is an embedded amplifier, the output power of which is 240 watts. That brings them squarely in the sights of the European power police, no doubt. So don't expect them to last long in Europe. But moving back to the actual headphones, there's three control settings, which I found strangely named off, on and on plus. Interesting. Unusual. Um, because of that, they need power and there's a rechargeable battery inside the whole thing. But the good news is they will work without power. It's just that you won't have this amplification thing going on. One thing I did like is the cables. It ships with two cables. One is 1.2 metres and the other, they say, is like... Um, a domestic cable for use at home, which is three metres. Now, I really like that. I like the idea of the exchangeable cables because sometimes I want to use a pair of headphones. I mean, I've got more than one pair of headphones. I have headphones for editing that have got like um, a curly cable. They're a pair of Sony's and they're like DJ headphones, but they've got the curly cable. And I, I really like that one. But the problem is if I want to just plug that into my iPhone, the cable's really quite long. So the ability to change the cables would be fantastic. The only thing about these headphones was they're as ugly as sin, aren't they? They weren't pretty. I hope they're comfier than they look. But as you say, they will be available by now. So we want to know what you think. Would you pay that kind of money for headphones? And what do you think of these? Not pretty. Not pretty at all. But the audio files might enjoy them. Depends what they sound like, I guess. Which takes you back to where are you buying them from? Because if you can't try them on, you're not going to get the full experience. Maybe Apple will have them. She said, and then laughed. I wonder if Apple would be stocking them because they're trying to sell beets, surely. True. Didn't think mm. of that. But moving on to something much more useful. The perennial problem of the MagSafe 2 converter and keeping it where you need it, when you need it. This is the little tiny piece of um, metal thing that you put on your old style MacBook Pro and MacBook power packs to convert it to the new style ones. They are actually £9, which I know it won't break the bank, but it might do depending on how many times you lose it, she said, speaking from bitter experience. So I've got one of these things and um, you've got two options. The first thing I found was this Mag Cozy which is a plastic strap and it attaches the adapter to the cable, which is great if you always want the converter with the cable. But it's not great if you want to keep it with you. But they're quite inexpensive. You can get two of them for £6.99. I'll put a link to those in the show notes. But as I say, I do tend to keep mine with me. And the reason I do that is that I've got several power cables around the house, all strategically placed. And that means I don't have to carry out the whole power cable around with me all the time. So I was looking for a more portable solution and I found it in an unlikely way. I was searching Amazon for something completely different when I found the perfect solution. And actually thinking back to what I could have been looking for, I have no idea how I, whatever I was searching for came up with this. But it is a leather plectrum holder and it's a key ring. So it's really small 
It's tough enough to be secure though, and it holds the converter really easily. You can imagine two pieces of leather stitched together with like an envelope flap that passes over the front and then a press stud to close it. And the press stud itself is metal. The back of the press stud is inside the plectrum holder. So this adapter, the converter that you're putting in there is magnetic. So you're not going to lose it because it's going to be stuck to the back of the press stud. The keyring itself is really sturdy. So what I've done with mine is I've put it on an extendable extension keyring. So, you know, like um, a bit like I was talking about the headphones, curly cable, looks like that plastic extension thing. We called it an anti-stupidity device for your keys, if you remember. Yeah. I'm not going to admit that I lock my keys in my car. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, but I did. So <laughs> I've got one of these things. That's what I, I remember used it for. that. So I've attached that to my laptop bag and then I pop the converter inside of it. Awesomely portable. So the adapter is now with the laptop because I wouldn't need the adapter unless I had the laptop with me. So I shall put a link in the show notes to that. Even better price, £2.25. So I got two. Don't ask me why I got two when I've lost one of the converters because I've not found it yet. <laughs> but if I ever find it, then there's a little home for it to live in. Yeah, I don't actually need the converter, but I do fancy one of these. Ah, we're so easily persuaded. But now, on to the first part of our three-part deep dive of all things WordPress. Now, before you turn off, if you don't use WordPress, we've got a whole range of Mac and iOS apps to talk about because they integrate with WordPress and other content platforms. So part one is all about how to get your content into WordPress. Yeah, WordPress was originally a blogging platform. Now, if you think back to uh, quite a few years ago, when we first started designing websites and web pages, you would have to create the web page yourself, write the HTML code, uh, use something like Notepad if you were uh, using a PC or some, some plain text editor like TextEdit if you were using a Mac, and then upload the HTML files up to your, your web space. Uh, and WordPress kind of changed all that. Now, as I said, originally, it was a, just a blogging platform, but these days it's it's much more than that. There's actually two versions of WordPress. There is um, having a hosted WordPress site at wordpress.com. So you can go to wordpress.com, you can set up a, a free account, and you can set up a website. It's fairly easy to do. You log into your account and you have a nice little editor, nice little browser-based editor to type up your text without having to know any HTML, drag and drop your images in, etc., etc. So that's one way of doing it. If, however, like us, you've got your own website, so you've bought a domain and you've um, bought some host, some some um, space on a, a server, then what you need to do is you need to download the WordPress software. Would you call it software? Yes, of course it is. Yeah. So you you download the WordPress software. Um, you go to wordpress.org for that. You then install the WordPress software on your web space and off you go. Simple as that. Well, that's the theory anyway. But what you've now got is you've got thousands of themes um, some of them are paid for, some of them are free. So you can totally change the look and feel of your website. You know, if you think about the websites we've got, you know, we've got the MacBytes site, um, I've got the Excel trainer, we've got our own blogs, you've got your own sites. They all look totally different. Um, and you've got plugins as well, which add additional functionality. So it's really become a platform for building websites from a basic blog, to say a, a fully fledged e-commerce site that's integrated with membership schemes, payment systems, and so on. But the thing we want to look at here is how you add and edit the content on your site. Originally, the only way to do it was via a browser-based admin panel. So each website had an admin login page. You go to the page, you log in, and then you add a new post, which in essence is a web page, or you edit existing content. And the admin panel can also be used to configure the site, add in plugins, change the theme, etc. Now there's, there's two views when you go into your uh, your back end, because we love a back end, don't we? Oh, 
Illuminated. Illuminated backends, yes. You can't beat a good backend. But when you go into your backend, uh, you can choose whether to use an HTML view, which gives you just a code box where you, you actually type in the HTML code, uh, or a WYSIWYG view. Now, for those who've never heard of WYSIWYG, it's what you see is what you get. Um, and the WYSIWYG view is great, uh, nice little editor. You can type your text, you can select it. So if you want to make something bold, instead of having to know the HTML code, you just select your text and click the bold button. Um, it's just, it's not really WYSIWYG because it's not totally 100% what you see is what you get, but it's just not as daunting as, uh, as viewing the raw code. Now, I don't know about you, but I certainly think that the editor has certainly got better over time. I think it has, but I, I still don't think it, it's 100% there. It's not 100% there, no. I think you've, you've got to have some experience of, of building websites to understand its its idiosyncrasies, for want of a better word, and, and be able to go in and fix things. I use the editor, actually, the, the web-based editor, a lot especially if I'm editing at work because I don't have any alternatives. But there are some alternatives. There are. Um, I didn't like the back end a few years ago. It was all too easy to lose content. You know, like if you inadvertently swiped your mouse and it moved backwards, it didn't warn you. I've done that. And then you move forwards and it's gone. Um, that is less impactful these days because um, it's got an automatic backup going on. But at the time, it was very easy to lose content. I also found the website could be quite slow and, and clunky. There, As you say, there is a WYSIWYG view and there's also this code view. I preferred working in the code view, but it was still slow and it was still clunky. And once I'd lost stuff more than once, it put me off. So what I did was I got a client for the Mac called Mars Edit. So it's a client for posting to a whole range of online blogging platforms. It's not just WordPress. There's a whole range that it supports. And it's actually quite simple to use. You connect it up to your blog. You used to have to manually enable your RPC access, which sounds complicated, but it's not. It's a tick in a box. But I think now that's enabled by default. But that's the one thing you might have to do at the blog end of it. Once you've done that, that's it. You're ready to roll. So Mars Edit reads in all the posts and all the pages that are on your blog. It also enables you to create posts and pages. And you've got options. You can save things locally. You can save a draft online and you can publish from there. So it's great for working offline. And I did use it, but I must admit, I did start to use it less because, as you say, the back end got better. And for me, I found other apps to create content for my blog that were more suited to structured content because what you get with Mars Edit is an empty text box and you just put in what you want. There's no structure to it. Uh, you have to mark up everything by hand. The interface is somewhat dated too by modern standards, but it does do the job and it is rock solid. I've not had any particular issues with it. But as I say, there are disadvantages. It's not a WYSIWYG editor, so it's not what you see is what you get. Uh, to be honest, the preview that it gives you, and it does give you a preview, which is just as well if you're writing like I do in HTML, but the preview that you get really, apart from the words that you type, has no fidelity at all to the final post. So uh, on to an app with a more modern interface. Yes, modern is one word for it, but after using it, I had a few others. Yes, I heard most of them. Yes, well, for my blog and for the Excel trainer, most posts that I write are either written tutorials or a video from YouTube that I pull in with a bit of supporting text. I have heavy reliance on plugins, uh, and I also use something called short codes, uh, which are something that allows you to re basically replace a whole block of code with one line. And um, I therefore need to be able to view and edit the HTML. I also need to be able to add um, the excerpt to a post and all an excerpt is is a, a you know a short I was going to say one liner but it's it's a short uh, description of 
the content which is often displayed in a, a summary page. When you look at a blog, you often see a list of blog posts with a blog post title and then two or three lines of text underneath. And that is the excerpt. Also for a couple of our sites, for our NWAG site, the Northwest Adobe Group and for MapBytes Learning, I need to be able to add values to what they call custom fields. For MacBytes, uh, for the show notes, I need to be able to access the HTML view as what we do. We copy and paste the show notes in from a text editor. And if you've noticed on the MacBytes site, we have an audio player for each um, episode. And so I need to go in and amend the settings in there. And also I need to set the author to be the MacBytes crew. So um, there's quite a lot of requirements there. Very similar on the NWAG site, I need to go in and set the author and I need to be able to edit values in custom fields. So I've got quite a lot of what you might say are out of the ordinary uh, requirements. So I took a look, uh, a look at Pixel Pumper. I think I drew the short straw this week. I think you did. It's got... Um, we talked about interfaces. Yes, it's got a what you call a Fisher-Price interface. And um, I think you'd have to look at it to, to, to explain it. It, it. it was like a piece of paper, wasn't it? Um, a graphical piece of paper, which was representing what you were typing into. So I can see where they're, they're getting that from. But the app itself... I didn't get beyond that graphics box in the top right. Yes. Because it, it was very 3D-ish, wasn't it? I think we're all in, in the sphere now of everything being flat. And this was like anti-flat. It was skeuomorphic in, in the extreme. It was, but maybe that can be explained by the fact that um, it's not the app hasn't been updated for over 12 months, July 2013. The developers actually said they are actively working on a new version. And they said that in July 2013. Although when I went to pixelpumper.com, it loads in a blank page. And when I searched, when I typed into Google Pixel Pump and the first result was pixelpumper.com, that little bit of text, the, the description that accompanies the, the URL in, in your Google search results, actually said that um, the domain may be for sale, although they have just... Can I just say, before we started this um, look at WordPress, that that was actually an active app and there was a website there. It's just that, you know, you're, you've jinxed it, you've looked at it, and now it's dead. I think I did. Yes, you said to me, you have a look at Pixel Pumper for, the, for this review. So I did. That's only because I was looking at the other one. Yes, you definitely didn't draw the, drew the, the, the short straw. The domain is actually registered until August next year. But um, as I said, Google said the domain may be for sale. When you actually start to use the app, there are some inconsistencies. For example, Command and B for bold doesn't toggle. Command and, and I for, for um, italic doesn't toggle, but Command and U does. So you can select some text and Command and U to underline it and Command and U to remove the underline. So there's some inconsistencies there in, in the user experience. If you want to insert a hyperlink, that can be done. So you select some text and you say insert hyperlink, but you can't set it to open the link in a new window. So when the user is actually looking at your blog post on the, on the website um, and they click the link, they, they you can't set it up to open in a new window. You can't insert a video, which obviously is crucial to me, and you've got no access to plugins and no access to, to the shortcuts and the, uh, the short codes. Um, and the worst thing was when we were testing it, I actually lost a live blog post. I shouldn't laugh, should I? You need the full story there. It duplicated it, didn't it? So you thought you had two. Yes. At which point you decided to delete one. Big mistake. Yes, it was It was obviously two instances of the one record. <laughs> oh, and both of them were deleted when you deleted it. Oh, dear. I did get it back in the end. Um, for what it's worth, we will stick a link in the show notes, but... Um, Next to a skull and crossbones warning, I think. It's up to you. You know, I I don't like to give um you know negative comments on the show, but you know, it's up to you whether you want to use it or not. Should we should we move on to something better? <laughs> yes. Um I was taking a look at Blogo 2, which is sort of an update to the original Blogo, which was released in 2008. And for those that are thinking, 
that's ringing a bell and you can't quite remember. It was an app that had um, a geeky rabbit icon. It looks like a nerdy rabbit. It was a, a blue rabbit with uh, square glasses on it. And it was a great app when it was released, Blog01. There was a lot of fuss about it and uh, I had it, I used it, could have been in a bundle at some point. It was a good app. The thing was, it just died. There was a change made and I believe it, was, it wasn't It was particularly a change to WordPress. I'm thinking it was a change uh, in OS X and it just completely stopped working. And the thing was, there was no communication from the developer. So that's why I say it's sort of an update, because it's got the same primary developer, but there is a whole new team behind it, and it's a complete rewrite of the original version. Now, if you have got that original version, there is no upgrade pricing, but at the moment there is 50% off for everyone via the Mac App Store, and it's £10.49. It does have a great interface. It's very modern. It has fantastic graphics handling. So one of the problems I've found, even working in WordPress, I mean, WordPress has got a lot better with handling graphics, but in terms of taking a graphic in and scaling it exactly as you want to, it's it's trickier than it should be to do that. So um, Blog02 is fantastic in that regard. Great handling of graphics. And there is the promise of even more features in the pipeline. So I connected it to my blog and I uh, connected it to a couple of others. The links to the blogs are easily enough to create. One of the problems I had, but I don't think many people would have that, we have a live site and we have a copy of that site in a development site. So it's on a completely different server, completely different URL to it. But the two sites, one is a copy of the other. The development site is a copy of the live one. And there was no ability to rename the link. So in essence, I've got two entries in the list of blogs and I cannot tell which one is the development one and which is the live one. It did actually get worse than that, didn't it? I tried accessing the first one and then the second one and I was seeing the posts from the development site and I couldn't get to the live site at all. But that's, I'll give them some leeway with that because it is an unusual requirement, but I'll get onto them and see what they say. Um, it's got an inbuilt image editor, which is handy. It also allows you to schedule posts, which I think Mars Edit does. But if it, if it does, it doesn't do it as nicely as this. This has a little calendar icon and you click on there and you can actually schedule it within that window. You know, full calendar, full works. So that's very nice. As all of these apps do, it allows you to work offline, which is great if you don't want to actually you know, save it up to your blog straight away. But another feature it's got that is completely unique when you're working offline, it may be that, you know, you're going to go out and you need to carry on working. At that point, you can save the post as a draft. So it's not live on your site, but it is there on your site as a draft and you can edit it. Now, that's one way of working. But this has a completely unique way of working with drafts, which is you can connect the whole app up to Evernote. And then when you save a draft, instead of it being saved, on the actual blog within WordPress, it doesn't. It saves it within Evernote. And then when you open up Blog02, it reads it back in from Evernote and you can carry on editing it. And then either choose to save it back to Evernote or publish it to your blog. And I thought that's a, an, an odd feature. It's potentially quite useful if you work that way. But why on earth would that be there? And then as I thought about it, I thought because it gets around the lack of a mobile version, there's no mobile version of Blog02 yet. So it's a, it's a great way to work around that because you can use Evernote on any device in any platform. Now, the best feature of this is the preview because you can preview your post before you post it. And once you've connected Blog02 to your blog, it does this um, thing once where it reads in your theme and then the preview is amazingly accurate. It's the most accurate preview I have ever seen. There's, there's a couple of pixels out and that's it. To be honest, you probably wouldn't even notice because the pixels where it puts in an extra line are actually within the text. But the whole framework of your theme is pulled through perfectly. Um, if you're editing a post, then it's actually pretty accurate in terms of the code it writes into that post. But, and this is my, my killer problem with this app, 
the code it writes if you're writing a new blog. So I go to, to blog02, I say, choose my blog, new blog post, and I start writing it. I'm using a WYSIWYG editor and it's pretty nice. But as I'm typing it, it is writing HTML code behind the scenes. So for most people, they don't want to see the HTML code. They don't care, in which case this is fantastic. But if you do at any point ever need to view the HTML code or edit the HTML code. Now, you might think I'll never do that. I will never need that. But if you go into the back end of WordPress, you may need to do that. And what you would be faced with from Blog02 can only be described as horrific. The code it writes for new posts is completely horrific. If, if you are familiar with HTML, it is pure HTML with no spaces whatsoever. So I wouldn't even say it's like um, Xcode or something where there's lots of code, thousands of lines of it. It's not that. It's the fact that there is no spacing at all. I was, I looked at it and I couldn't believe it because I thought, well, I just can't use that. I know at some point I'm going to want to look at the HTML and you could not make out one single word of this thing. It was all just a mess. And um, the other problem is if I'm working in the WYSIWYG view, it did kind of jump about, didn't it? And I tracked that down because you saw it. It jumped, didn't it? It did. It jumped because the text I was editing had no P tags in it. And the reason that the text I was editing had no P tags in it for the uninitiated, that indicates a paragraph in HTML, is because WordPress doesn't automatically put P tags in. Now, we had a discussion about this a good few months ago, and I said to you, WordPress isn't putting in the P tags, you know, unless you put them in yourself. And you said, yeah, but they're not needed. This is an example where clearly they are. So if you're writing your blog posts in HTML or you're doing it in the WYSIWYG editor, Pro tip, use the P tags, because if you don't, these apps sometimes just go mad. They can't work out whether it's a paragraph or it should be a heading or whatever it is. So I would say blog02 almost there if the code it wrote was better and it could get around the P tags being miss missing. It's got a nice future as long as they keep developing it. So what I'm going to do with that, I'm going to put all my gripes and, and my I've broken it into an email and uh, send them off and I will report back what, what they say. At the moment, they seem to be saying all the right things to people who are reporting issues and they have actually already fixed quite a few. Although it's version two, it really is very much a version one. Um, but like I say, I think it's got potential. So you can get that from getblogo.com and as I say, it's £10.49. But onto some apps that you might not instantly associate with WordPress. The first of these being Clarify from Blue Mango. Now, I've used that for creating written tutorials and I've output those to Word files, PDF. I've used the Clarify website, but not often. And WordPress. And uh, the reason really that I keep my stuff in Clarify, especially tutorials, is it's the one place to have content and be able to repurpose it really easily. So it's the repurposing that draws me to it. Um, as we've said before, I, I was an alpha tester for Screen Steps, absolutely loved it. But um, that's gone enterprise level, if not in features, in price. So uh, all changed to Clarify now. And um, it's very simple to configure for WordPress. It's the same process as all of the apps accessing WordPress use. So very, very simple to access it. And then what I think is its best feature is that it keeps a track of where the content has been published inside each file. So if you've got a tutorial that you've written and, and the idea of Clarify is that it's in steps, you take a screenshot or you put an image in and then you write the text to go with it and then you rinse and repeat until you're done. But of course, sometimes when I'm doing this, I'm making a tutorial. And if it's something like how to subscribe to an RSS feed, I'm going to want to use that on multiple blogs. And that's where Clarify has you covered in that it all you put in Clarify is the text and the images for the tutorial. It has no concept whatsoever of the styling of a blog. So I could have this thing published to 10 different blogs, 
And keeping a track of where that content has been published inside each file means that it's really easy to update the content on the blog. And it's also easy to share it because when we had the Screen Steps library, we had trouble sharing, didn't we? We had, to, we had it in, in um, Dropbox, but then it had to be flags up. Either you were editing it or I was editing it and we had to be very careful or we'd corrupt the thing. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. So this gets around that problem because I could just give you the file. And if you update it, it will know that you've done it when you give me back the file. So it's very easy to update and it's very easy to share. Now, beyond tutorials, it, as I say, the structure is tutorial based. But if you just wanted to write a blog post, then leave the images out. You can also add video. In fact, you can add any HTML. So I think it works really well. It does. It does work very well. The only thing I found is the code that it generates, the HTML code, isn't that brilliant. It's not perfect, no, but it's way better than Blogo. Mind you, that wouldn't be difficult, would it? It's easy enough to style it, but yes, there are problems. It's easy to style because there's lots of hooks for CSS. So it does name things. So if you've ever used CSS, you have to have a name for something before you can actually style it. And it does have lots of that. They do have a tendency to change the style names, which is a problem for your CSS. The other thing is it uses what's called inline styles and inline styles are a nightmare. So here's a situation. You're writing um, a tutorial and you format something. Maybe you want it red, maybe you want it blue and you format it that way, which is fine. It will write that as an inline style. Which means if, if the formatting you applied was to make the text red or to make the text blue, then it would be and it would be posted up there like that. And if you wanted to change it, you'd either have to edit the HTML that's on your site or go back to clarify, make the change and then re-upload it. Now, there's no other way that you could do that. And I understand that they're not writing a full CSS style sheet to attach to it. But here's where there is a bigger problem with the inline styles. If I mark something up as being code, so I do this within Clarify, it has an option to say mark this as code. So I'm writing a line of code that says subscribe to this RSS feed. If I highlight that and I style it with code, it writes it as an inline style. And here's why that's a problem. I would put maybe 50 tutorials on a site and I've got all the code formatted the same. It's red. And then I get the accessibility police coming back and saying, no, they need to be green. Then I've got a massive job to do. I've got to update 50 files and re-upload them. What I want to do is have them formatted with CSS. And the reason that you use CSS is you make one change to one line in the CSS and all of the instances of that style update. You can do that with Clarify, but you have to put the code in a paragraph of its own. If you put it in a paragraph of its own, you can hook in with CSS and update all those pages automatically. I don't think that's obvious, do you? It's not obvious, no. No. So that was a, an issue with that, but you, know, you can work around it. So for me, I would say 90% of what I write is tutorials and I would use that for them. But there are other options. There are. And you use the what I would call the £800 gorilla of writing apps for blogging as well. But go on, admit it. I've tempted you with it now. Yeah, for creating, yes. But um, the export is a complete mystery to me as you wrote it. Yes. Well, people think of Scrivener for novels and large projects, but it is just as adept with shorter pieces. It gives you complete organisation and research management. So... I guess some people think that's overkill, but I would say you don't have to use all of those features. It's an awesome app. And the key to the whole thing is the export, which is known as compiling. So when you start using it, you organize your content into folders and files. And those folders and files are stored in the tree structure that's accessed via something called the binder. So it's just on the left hand side of the screen. And it really, it just lets you focus on what you create, not the format of it. The format of it is completely optional. You know, you can write it in pink comic sans if you want. Luckily, you don't have to have it exported that way. And that's why compiling for output is the key. For me, it lets me have the information that I've got in the file 
once, but output it to different formats. And it's not really just different formats. It's not taking a block of text and taking exactly the same text and outputting it to 10 different formats, one being a blog, one being a PDF, one being a Word file. No, it, it goes beyond that. You can actually output different content. And you do that via the files, the folders, the synopsis, the document notes, and all of the metadata. Now, that sounds really complicated, but it's not actually. What I do with it, for example, is uh, courses. When I'm creating courses, I have a folder structure on the left hand side and the top level folder will be the name of the course. And then within that, I'll have a range of admin folders that I will never want exported. They're just my tracking folders. But then I'll have the actual content of the course. So I'll have a folder for each lesson in the course. Uh, do I have sections? I don't think I put sections in it, but I could do if I wanted to and just go down another level. But I have like one folder for each lesson. So that folder will have a name and within it, it will have either one or more files. And though that will be uh, the examples I'm using, the demonstration files, all that information. That's the information that I'll need at the point I'm recording a tutorial. But I also have and I, I store this in the document notes, but you could store it in any one of these places. I'll also have the files that I'm using in the demonstration that the learners can download. So that's in there as well. I've also got metadata. So is this recorded? Is it edited? Is it checked? Is it signed off? I've got all of that in there as well. So I've got all that information in there. But what I'm able to do is to create a compilation preset and it can be as simple or as complicated as you like. So what I can do is to create one that just exports the titles of the folders. You might think, why would you do that? Because that's my course outline. So I don't have to worry about keeping a course outline separate. I just create a course outline from Scrivener. So I don't need to have a separate file in a text file and keep the two married together as I move the usually lessons around within the course. So that's one thing I can do with it, but I can also export uh, all the details. So if I'm delivering um, away from my computer, away from my Mac, I can take all my notes with me in a, a different format. So as I say, it can be as simple or as complicated as you like, but what I've done for WordPress is I've created an export setting for HTML and then I paste the HTML into WordPress and I'm done. But you tried that and it didn't end well, did it? Because the trick is to use Markdown, not HTML as the output. So you tell it that you're putting Markdown in and you'd like HTML out. And the reason that you do that is that the HTML based output is very poorly formatted. Not quite as bad as Blog02, but not far off. So the Markdown format makes very clean HTML during the compile process. And it also lets me write in Markdown too, which I prefer to do. Uh, writing in Markdown is just cleaner than writing in HTML. I could choose to write um, in just normal uh, RTF formatting, but then that upsets the output as well. So I'd say write, write in Markdown. Markdown is your friend. It is. I'm just getting to grips with Markdown and I use our export settings. Well, Scrivener is great at allowing settings to be portable. So you can either um, synchronize your settings up to Dropbox and then you've got the same settings on every machine you work on. Or, which is what I did with you, I took a point in time export of the configuration settings and then just gave that to you. So in conclusion, then, for me, as someone who's not afraid of seeing HTML and code, I usually go back to the browser editor. Um, sometimes, as I said, I've got no option with that anyway if I'm not at a Mac. Mainly I use Clarify and Scrivener, although I do usually end up in the back end anyway, making those granular tweaks that are always needed. Um, I just don't tend to sit there and type into the browser. Been burnt too many times for that. So next week, we're moving on to working with WordPress via your mobile devices. But now it's time for feedback and comments. Yes, this week we heard from Jim, who says, um, I hope a check is in the post for me for a review of the app. You'll be lucky. Look at the hours I have to work for bed and board. Yeah, he carried on. He was talking about the taking the iPad into a football match. Uh, he says, what's this nonsense about not being able to take an iPad into a football match because of copyright? Surely the copyright belongs to the person that takes the images 
or the video and, and not the football team because they didn't take it. Anyway, does the ban include everybody, journalists, BBC, ITV and so on, as they use them too? And you make an interesting point there, McJim, but sadly, that's a potential loophole to their image rights. They've already sewn up. Yes, according to the FA ground regulations, no person other than a person who holds an appropriate licence may bring into or use within the ground any equipment which is capable of recording or transmitting by digital or other means any audio-visual or audio-video visual material or any data or information in relation to the match or any aspect of it. Although apparently mobile phones are permitted within the ground, provided that they're used for personal or private use. Now, these rules are applicable to all Football League and Premier matches or stadia where Football League and Premier League teams play. And the statement goes on to say that the club or any police officer or authorised steward may refuse entry or eject from the ground any person that fails to comply with these ground regulations. And these rules also apply to warm-ups, the match itself, or even just being in the stadium. And there we are, all thinking we lived in a free country. But no. Anyway, it's not only McJim talking about Hank Schreiter this week. We had a lovely note from the developer, so thank you very much for that as well. Yeah, and you found another review this week on iTunes, didn't you? I did. It had escaped me for an entire month. I found it all the way from New Zealand. And the title is Elaine, Mike and Siri. What a combination. Five stars. And it's from uh, Nemic. I like that name, Nemic, from New Zealand. And he said, great podcast. Elaine and Mike don't take themselves too seriously. They are informative and entertaining and delve into the depths of Apple products and apps. So thank you for that very much. Hugely appreciated. Thank you. Yes, cheers for that. Thank you. Thank you from me too. Good to see you appreciate the real star of the show. Well, that's it for this episode of MacBytes, and we'd love to hear from you. So um, use the website, Facebook, Google+, and, of course, Twitter, twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytes series. So until the next time, this has been Mike and Elaine bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. You're not actually thinking of doing it, are you? A challenge is a challenge. Even so, I don't think it's wise. My word is my bond. You'll regret it. Just hold the bucket. Ready? Do it. Oh. My. Word. I told you you'd regret it. I think I've just frozen my illuminated backside off. You don't have to drench yourself to make the world a better place. Just be kind to one person today, and ask them to pay it forward.